Good afternoon, everybody. Hopefully you're still awake for this panel, the exhilarating discussion of the licensing landscape. Uh, before we start, I'd first like to have my fellow panelists introduce themselves because we are going to be getting in to a lot of different areas, a lot of complexity, hopefully. We will have time for questions. Uh, I would like to do them at the end if you have an absolute pressing question that you cannot hold yourself back, uh, raise your hand in between and I'll decide whether or not it's an opportune time uh, to allow someone to ask a question. My name is Gary Greenstein. I'm a lawyer with the law firm of Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich and Rosati, which is based in Palo Alto and I am based in Washington, DC. I'm the former general counsel of Sound Exchange, worked for the RIAA, represented Universal Music Group, and now I represent technology companies adverse to record labels, music publishers, film studios, etc. Brad? My name is Brad Prendergast. I'm the uh, senior counsel at Sound Exchange for licensing and enforcement. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Sound Exchange during the course of the presentation, but in a nutshell, Sound Exchange is the collective designated by the uh, Copyright Office to collect and distribute royalties for, for webcasting, for streaming, for uh, digital audio transmissions of sound recordings. Um, and in my capacity as uh, counsel for licensing and enforcement, I work with webcasters who uh, are, need to come into compliance with the statutory license and webcasters who are, are not yet um, aware of what uh, they're required to pay in royalties for their, for their streams. Good afternoon, everybody. Michael Drexler. Um, I oversee business development for new media at BMI. BMI stands for Broadcast Music Incorporated. Uh, the largest uh, performing rights organization in the U.S. We, we collect license fees on behalf of our licensees and then distribute them to our uh, art, uh, writers, publishers, and composers. Hi, my name is Ron Gertz. I'm a recovering copyright lawyer and songwriter. Um, uh, I'm chairman of Music Reports, Inc., and we are... Didn't you guys say the largest in each of your... Yeah, largest okay, so, so okay, not to be outdone. Uh, we are the largest uh, independent administrator of music rights in the world. We have the largest databases of copyright ownership information in the world. And we use that, uh, those databases and our um, vast largest uh, data processing facilities in the world to um, uh, handle the financial transactions regarding royalty payments for the largest music users in the world. And the smallest me... egos in the music industry. <laughs> I guess that makes me the widest. Uh, my name is Jeff Price. I ran a label called SpinArt for about 20 years, helped to launch a company called eMusic and launched TuneCore about six years ago. By the way, for those of you who are joining, you will get the t-shirt. I went to the SF Music Tech Summit and all I got was a direct license. Thank you for attending the panel. Okay, so... Before we dive into it, we're going to cover a wide range of issues. We've got people here on the panel who, because of their positions, there will be topics that they cannot address. So I apologize in advance. I've told the panelists that they can take the fifth, either on behalf of their own company or any of the clients that they represent. So don't hold it against them if uh, they decline to answer due to client sensitivities. Uh, before we dive into it, though, I want to make sure we're all using the same language. So for those of you, this is going to be the copyright 101 in roughly three minutes. So we've got two different works that we're talking about. You've got the musical work or the composition, notes and lyrics. You've got the sound recording. An easy way to think about it is think of the Beatles 
and you've got Lennon and McCartney, and then you've got John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Lennon and McCartney are songwriters. They wrote the vast majority of the musical works, and that's the copyright term, uh, is musical work. So that's what both the Beatles, as John, Paul, George, and Ringo performed, as well as many other bands. If you're doing a cover of the Beatles, you're doing a cover of the musical work. A songwriter or a lyricist, they create the musical work, they affiliate with a music publisher, or they assign rights to a music publisher. Songwriters join frequently organizations that are called PROs, performing rights organizations. In the United States, you've got ASCAP, BMI, and CSEC. They have non-exclusive rights to license the works for public performance. You've got an entity called the Harry Fox Agency, which licenses reproduction rights uh, for a musical work. On the sound recording side, typically you're going to have a recording artist that is signed to a record company. The record company typically obtains exclusive rights to the recordings. They own the copyright in the sound recording, and then they license those rights. The rights that can be licensed under the Copyright Act are the rights of reproduction, distribution, public performance, public display, creation of derivative works, or public performance by means of a digital audio transmission in the case of a sound recording. As we're talking, you want to make sure, or as you analyze an issue, if you're a technology company, or an entrepreneur, or an investor, or if you are an artist, you want to make sure you understand the distinctions of what we're talking about. Different rules apply to musical works and sound recordings. Different rights you, you may license under different types of licenses, depending upon the work is, what the work is. There are different types of licenses that we'll talk about today. One is called a statutory license, also known as a compulsory license. It's created by Congress. Congress says, here are the the responsibilities that a licensee has to use a copyrighted work. So long as you comply with what is in the statute, you pay royalties and you comply with certain regulations that may uh, be adopted, you can be a licensee. There are what are called direct licenses, where a licensee or a user goes to the copyright owner and obtains permission. A license is basically someone asks for permission and then they get a grant of rights that permits them to engage in certain activities. Then you have another category of licenses that are blanket licenses that are similar to statutory, but they're not actually set forth in the statute. They may be governed by consent decrees entered into between a party in the United States Department of Justice. Each of ASCAP and BMI operate under uh, consent decree licenses or consent decree agreements, and they offer blanket licenses to their users. So, that's some of the language that we will be using and hopefully people will follow along and not get lost. And if you are getting lost and, and I see blank eyes, I'll, I'll try to reel it in. I, I got about 80% of that, so I'm okay. okay. Can you say that again? <laughs> Faster. Okay, so one of the things I want to jump into right away is in the press last week, there was a story about TuneCore getting into a disagreement with Amazon and Amazon withdrawing content from certain of its stores in Europe. And if you are an artist who had music up on Amazon and all of a sudden you found that your content was no longer available, you might be asking, what is going on? If you are a technology company and you're thinking, well, if it could happen to Amazon, maybe it can happen to me. What do I need to know about that situation? What can I learn from that? 
and how do I prepare for that? So Jeff, why don't you tell us uh, what is going on between TuneCore and Amazon, and from a licensing standpoint, what it means and what are the opportunities for TuneCore? Sure. By the way, I know this stuff can be eye-glazing. This is how you make your money. The things that he was talking about, literally the six legal copyrights, this is how artists and musicians make your money. This stuff is really fucking important. So anyway, uh, in regards to Amazon, let me speak more generally for what could be obvious reasons. Digital music services require licenses in order to make music available to use in their digital music services. One for the recording of the song and a separate second license for the from the person or entity that represents the person that wrote the song. Um, digital music services don't seem to have both set of licenses. And if they keep the recordings of the songs up in their services and make them available for people to buy, they would be infringing on copyright, thereby increasing their liability. So one could think, well, if I'm a digital music service and somebody asked me a simple question like, hi, I'm Jeff from TuneCore. I was just wondering if you have the appropriate licenses necessary to include the stuff in your store. And that service didn't, maybe one of the things they would do if they didn't have the licenses, I don't know, is discretionarily decide to take those recordings down because they might have gotten caught doing something they weren't supposed to do. In other words, they might not be paying all their royalties to the people they're supposed to be paying them to. Now, Jeff, when, when someone is making content available, uh, if you want to operate a webcasting service, and actually, let, let's... Uh, start off first on the musical work side. Michael, if someone wants to make public performances, they're going to stream music from a central server to a listener on a non-interactive basis. Can you describe what rights they need to get from BMI or what licenses BMI can offer to those services? So again, obviously BMI you know, represents the copyright in the, in the work, the song. So every uh, digital service provider that streams music, whether interactive or non-interactive, needs to get a license from BMI for the um, public performance of our catalog. So in terms of your non-interactive service, uh, it's actually pretty easy. You come to us, if you're a startup, uh, you can go to our website and download the, our standard internet website license. If you actually, um, if your service is truly non-interactive, and it, um, it follows the rules of the Section 114 copyright law, which basically uh, lays out the lay of the land of interactive services. You download the, um, the form, and at $335 a year, you can get a license in place. Now, when you become wildly successful in the next Pandora of the world, then we ask for a revenue share. And that revenue share for non-interactive radio is uh, around 1.75% of your revenues. So as you can see, there's no, no real advance required. It's fairly easy to get uh, licensed. Now, when someone is coming to BMI, are they getting all of the performance rights they need, or are there other people that they need to, uh, to go to? So obviously, you know, this is the performance right for the, the song. There's a performance right for uh, the sound recording, which you can talk to, for non-interactive uh, streaming. That but, uh, sound so exchange. for the musical work but side, For though. the musical work side, so essentially, you know, the standard license is pretty limited in terms of the, the properties it covers. So it really only covers a website license. Now, when you go into, let's say, launching a mobile app or you want to syndicate content out, so for example, a YouTube wants to place widgets or, you know, wants to place streams on third parties, that requires a different license. 
but I'm just talking about the real core sort of licensing one property for non-interactive radio. May now, I ask, how, how many of you have actually written a song? How many of you are songwriters? Okay, I, I'm curious, because when you write those songs, you get those six legal copyrights that he mentioned at the beginning of this panel for a digital music service, be it interact, a, a non-interactive one that was just being described. You either need to grant the right to him, and he can grant it to them, and then they pay him money, and he pays it back to you, or you need to grant it to them directly. If they use your song, regardless of if it's your recording or someone else's recording, they need the license, and you need to get paid. For an interactive service, they need, outside of the United States, two licenses from you. So once again, they either need to get it directly from you, and if you've written a song and your song was ever downloaded in, let's say, Amazon or iTunes or another service abroad, and those licenses haven't been issued to them, guess what? You're not getting paid your royalties. They're violating your copyright. It's that simple. Well, you can choose not to get a license, and you run the risk of getting sued. If you are a songwriter and you don't affiliate with an organization, the likelihood that you are going to get paid is probably non-existent from a practical standpoint. Uh, in the United States, you've got, we've got BMI here on the panel, and there used to be just three performing rights organizations that you had to go to. It was ASCAP, BMI, and CSEC. You now have uh, Jeff's company, TuneCore, which may be licensing musical works to services. And then you also have a situation where some music publishers that control the rights to compositions have withdrawn their affiliation from a PRO so that they would license directly. And Ron, can you, talk, uh, can you tell us about EMI Music Publishing and what it has done with respect to the withdrawal of its rights from ASCAP? Yes, but let me go back a step. Um, for a music user, there are a lot of music users who want the cheap, easy way out and the lazy way out which is to um, get a license from BMI, ASCAP, SoundExchange, or whoever, whatever collecting, or similar organizations throughout the world. Because as a matter of convenience, those blanket licenses are convenient. It's an easy way to do it. You know. And then, as Jeff said, you as a songwriter get paid through a system of collecting societies that collect money in one territory and pay it back to another territory and then pay it back elsewhere legitimate way of doing business for everybody. The problem is publishers and, and copyright owners throughout the world uh, have had issues with the way that system works because it takes a long time for the money to flow back. Uh, sometimes the accounting is terrible, high administrative fees, multiple layers of administrative fees. That's the old business. That's the business that we all, that I grew up on, that everybody grew up on. There's a new business. Look at what Jeff is saying. Jeff is saying, hey, you're the copyright owner. You own this. One of the ways you can get paid is to license through the collective society system. Another one is to go directly to the big international digital music users and say, I've lifted my rights out, pay me direct. That's a legitimate new business way of doing business and it is the trend. What happened? It started in Europe where the major music publishers realized that in 27 countries and at least 27, probably double that, collecting societies, some handling performing rights, some handling reproduction rights, that 27 territories it was impossible 
to get a pan-European multi-territory license. So what happened? Started out with the major music publishers after uh, a direct, after a online recommendation by the European Commission saying, we, the international music publishers, are pulling our reproduction rights out of the reproduction collecting societies. Therefore, UMCPS or SDRM, these are, by the way, all the collecting societies around the world, it's like alphabet soup, you know. Um, in Germany, it's Gesellschaft. In France, it's Society de something French, you know. It's hard to keep track of all of this stuff, you know. There's 244 of them. Yes. And um, so the major music publishers pulled their rights out and uh, put them into what are called, you know, this is techno-speak, option three platforms, which is really giving them back to the collecting societies, only doing special deals so they paid lower admin fees than everybody else does. And that was how they dealt with the reproduction rights. But the performing rights stayed in the collecting societies for a lot of legal, legal reasons. And actually, Ron, before... Can you just briefly explain the difference? We talked about the difference in right between a reproduction and a performance, but they are licensed separately. Yes. And you may have to go to different organizations to get different rights. So in the United States, BMI only licenses public performance. They do not license reproductions. See, this is critical. Well, they don't have to go to societies for this, and, and you'll touch on that. They can go to you for this, and if they don't, they're breaking the law. So let me explain two important concepts. One, territoriality. Copyrights are territorial. The internet isn't. So once you start doing cross-border transmissions, territoriality of copyright becomes unimportant. The other thing about the copyright law that is totally useless anymore is categories. You have performing rights. You have reproduction rights collected by multiple different kinds of entities, or you could say who siphon off the royalties, you know. But um, the problem is, it, it makes no difference whether getting the data from here to here involves a performing right and or a right to reproduce because there are multiple copies made and that's just how the internet technology works. It doesn't make any difference what you call it. Ultimately, the question is, what's the economic value of moving these bits from here to here? And that ultimately means that you don't need as many collecting societies. That's what's happening. Collecting societies are going to be going out, out of business all over the world. So what happened? What happened? EMI figured out that they could take out their reproduction rights, but still their performing rights in Europe were stuck in Europe. What did they do about it? They did something very smart. They negotiated with ASCAP and said, ASCAP, we want to change the way we do business. We want to leave all our performing rights with you because we like you, you're good people, and there are good people who work at collecting societies, and they do try to do their best. But you know, those digital rights that we control, we want to do that ourselves. We want to pull those rights out of ASCAP so that you, ASCAP, no longer have the right to grant a license for digital uses of our catalog. What happened? Domino effect. That meant, how did PRS, how do collecting societies throughout the rest of the world get the right to license performing rights? Because there were reciprocal agreements between ASCAP and those societies and those societies at ASCAP that allow ASCAP to grant those rights worldwide and ASCAP grants those rights to PRS, the equivalent in the UK. Once EMI terminated those rights, 
PRS and every other collecting society in the world lost the right to grant performing rights. What does that mean? That means that EMI can now do at-source deals. You know what an at-source deal is? Every lawyers in the music industry know what an at-source deal is. That's a deal in, in the publishing administration business where if you're going through a foreign sub-publisher, you make sure your royalties are calculated at the source, meaning the only administrative fee taken out can be taken out by the publisher in France. It used to be in a, in a non-at-source deal, the French sub-publisher would take out a fee, pay it to the US publisher and take out a fee and so on. The new at-source deal, ladies and gentlemen, will be you. Copyright owners doing deals, not through collecting societies, but direct from the digital music services themselves. Why would you do that? Well, first of all, you eliminate multiple layers of administrative fees. You get the money faster, you know. And, you know, say what you will about Spotify, about any of the digital music services, but somewhere there's a server counting every bit of activity and they can ultimately pay you, hopefully through our company, more accurately and more transparently with less friction than can, than can happen through a multitude of collecting societies throughout the world. That's, just, that's what Jeff figured out. And, and my hat is off to him for having done it. Now, Michael, what Ron just described where EMI <laughs> Publishing has taken the new media rights out of ASCAP domestically. If you were a US-based webcaster, Pandora, uh, you could go to ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC, you would be covered. Now, it's ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, EMI Music Publishing. It may soon be those four plus Warner Chapel, plus Universal Music uh, Publishing. Are we seeing a dissolution of, or a, not dissolution, but increased inefficiencies from the standpoint of a music licensee having to now go to multiple parties at the same time that rights owners are maybe seeing increased efficiency if they're big enough to go out and license directly and handle that volume of licensing? I mean, if you're a small music publisher, can you license all of those people who come knocking or is it better for you to get paid through a, a PRO? Give the defense for the PRO here. I was gonna jump in anyway, <laughs> without a question. But first of all, you know, the EMI withdrawal, I mean, I wasn't um, so sort of privy to it. Obviously, that happened with ASCAP, but uh, my understanding is that was extremely limited to specific works that they either controlled or they had specific bundled rights associated with them. So it's not like they, they pulled out the entire catalog. It was sort of a subset of it. But, but that being said, the jury is still out in terms of what that means. And, you know, now EMI can go out and obviously on a global basis um, uh, offer you sort of bundled rights. But I think in terms of the service providers out there that are trying to get licensed, I think it's an absolute nightmare. Because we, uh, BMI, uh, represents about 500,000 uh, writers, publishers, and composers. If, I, if I'm a, a radio, internet radio provider tomorrow, I don't want to make 500,000 phone calls. I want to have an easy way to get, the, to get a blanket license for the performances of that catalog. And, you know, uh, I think we have that, we offer that. And, you know, and, and by the way, we're, we're talking about digital here, which is a very small portion, actually, of, of all the things that PROs do. They also go out and they collect money for you from restaurants, bars, health clubs, radio, television, 
and, and so on. And it's been, we spend a lot of effort and time every day to go out and knock on people's doors and make sure that they're doing the right thing. And for that, you need a certain, you need leverage. So if you're part of the BMI um, organization, you can benefit from that leverage. See, I'm in favor of anything that gets artists more of their money more quickly with transparency and an audit trail. I mean, how fucking hard is that? Just give them their money. Now, to your point, BMI, ASCAP, CSAC can do all sorts of things that none of us can do. You just listed them off. I completely, 100% agree with you. I am not going to get in the business of running around to venues and bars and restaurants and elevators and salons, et cetera, et cetera, on your behalf. I don't have the infrastructure and I don't have the know-how. But there is something that I can do, and forgive me, I can do it better than they can do it. I know how many times your song was downloaded at Amazon. And if you wrote the song, I know how much money you wrote. And you know what? I can pay you that money every month, provided somebody like Amazon gives the money to me to give to you. And instead of waiting a year or two years to get your money, with no understanding of what the royalty rates are, and with this huge lag in getting paid, I'll pay you monthly, and you actually have an audit trail for the sound recordings, how many times your song was downloaded, and you're publishing. Look, there it is, same month. Oh, and by the way, you're getting more money more quickly with transparency. And this is where I'm all, I get pissed off. We should be in favor of anything that can get the people that create this music back more of their money. Everyone's bitching about how no one's making money. Well, number one, that's bullshit. But number two, on top of that, without you, I don't have a career. None Jeff, of us do. Jeff, what's your admin rate? What's my what? What's your admin rate? We take 10% on what we're able to collect. Michael, is so, BMI slow in paying, non-transparent? Well, I don't know I, where you take that one or two years from. I mean... <laughs> I will, explain it, you, you I will can, explain it if I mean, you like. On the international front. All right, your song is downloaded in Japan by a... No, Wait, you yeah. asked a very specific question, and I want to address it. Your song is downloaded in Japan, okay? The public performance really gets paid to JazzRack, the local collection agency. They take between 12 to 20% of the money, six to nine months, and then they split it, by the way, between the right of reproduction and the right of public performance. They have no right to do that on your behalf. Then they take the public performance money, kick it back to these guys six to nine months later, who then go through their accounting cycles another three, six, or nine months later until a year and a to two years later after another 3.7% deduction, you'll end up getting your percentage of the songwriter's share with the publisher's share being sent to a publishing entity. If you're in a publishing deal, who will take their admin fee before it kicks back to you two and a half years later. That's where I got the time frame from. So in the on the, US, right, on the right the of reproduction, US, you never got your wait, fucking wait, money because they never Jeff, paid you directly. Jeff, Jeff. In the Let's US, by the way, I'm sorry? in the US, United States of America? Well, as we no, just listen, pointed out, it's global. Yeah, yeah, we require, yeah, we require our obviously, our licensees to report to us quarterly. And so we get quarterly reports and we pay out on a quarterly basis. And um, can it be improved? Yes. And I think we're going to move into monthly reporting at some point. But right now, we're at the mercy of, uh, of our licensees to give us the data. And that's we pay out as quickly as we can. And, you know, the international issue, that's unfortunately a little bit of out of BMI's hands. Yes, we would love fault. to issue. We would it, love to issue international. International isn't your fault. I'm not blaming you for that. No, but, but you asked me how it was possible. Question, now you know. There's a YouTube stream question, in Japan. It takes two years to get your money. You can, to answer your question, uh, if you're a writer and you have performances on Pandora, you see them on your statement very clearly and very transparently, and you get paid a quarter after that happens. So I don't think, you know, there's a lack of transparency. Ron? So one of the things that you have helped pioneer is something called an adjustable, flexible blanket license, which, as you described, was taking what was the old model of doing things, and it's now created an opportunity for people to both enjoy a blanket license and the benefits of direct licensing. Can you give a very brief 
summary of what the AFBL is and how it operates. Yes, but let, let me say, you know, Michael is right. You know, the blanket license is a good deal for certain users, and it's a good deal for certain copyright owners. You know, you have to look at each medium uh, in its own economic and practical circumstances. But one of the things that has, ha that, that I guess was the hallmark of the old business was it was very difficult for people to Je like Jeff to do what they did and for a lot of transactions to take place because you had a system where a collecting society in a territory charged a certain fee for a blanket license, which never varied. Okay. So if a copyright owner and a user were to say, you know, uh, hey, copyright owner, I really like your music. I'll play a lot more of it if you'll do a deal directly with me. There was no way to fulfill that, that, um, that agreement because the user still paid the same blanket license fee to the collecting society, which meant that the user and a copyright owner wanted to do direct deals. That meant the user had to double pay. That was a problem we faced uh, for the background music industry in the U.S. And what we ended up with now, and both courts, uh, the, both the ASCAP and BMI rate courts have, um, have endorsed and um, uh, the, the economic principle, is that you have a blanket license. And by the way, this is a this is a lawyer speak. This is a matter of decretal interpretation. So both ASCAP and BMI consent decrees have been found to to say that every blanket license doesn't make any difference what industry it's in. Could be background music, could be Pandora. Every blanket license includes a mechanism to reduce the blanket license fee when a copyright owner decides to license its rights directly to a, a user. So the user can pay BMI or ASCAP, or it can pay the copyright owner. It doesn't pay both. That's what it means. Now, what I expect to happen is this issue is, is on appeal, but we're gonna have a decision shortly. And I think um, it, by the end of this year, we're gonna see the floodgates of direct licensing opening up. And that's not to say that, you know, and by the way, I, I know things get very, very heated here, but let me give you one example of what Jeff is talking about. How many of you songwriters would love to have your music used in Starbucks? In, or in 70,000 locations throughout the world? How many of you? Show of hands? Okay. Play Network, which puts all the music in Starbucks, uh, currently has to deal with a gazillion collecting societies throughout the world. And they pay in each territory of the world. And guess what? If that money doesn't come back seriously diluted with multiple uh, administration fees three years later, that's what happens. That's, that's the old system. Under the new system, what happens when Play Network says, hey, you know what? We want to license worldwide direct. So. Songwriters, record companies, give us a worldwide license. And what we will do is we will, now by the way, all the money that, that, that gets collected throughout the world is, is aggregated in Seattle because we, Play Network, send invoices out every, every month. So all of it's in Seattle. We'll pay you your pro rata share of that pool on a quarterly basis, no admin fee, just give us the rights worldwide. How many of you would take that deal? Only now, one. That's person? interesting. <laughs> okay. That's don't, really don't be interesting. shy. How many? How many songwriters would that's take that really deal? That's really interesting. How many of you would rather have money today rather than money in three years? Don't forget the time value of money. Right. 
So I know it's, I know it's timid. You're thinking, oh my God, will, will anybody get upset with me? The truth is, all the rights that collective societies get, at least in the US, are not exclusive, so you can do this. But more and more uh, clients and more and more users are going to this system where they pay you on a quarterly basis for all worldwide activity. That's now, Ron, you talked about sort of the old way of doing business. And Brad, you're with Sound Exchange, which is maybe the, the newest PRO. It, it, Sound Exchange is typically not called a PRO, although it essentially is. It's a collective, collecting royalties on a performance right. Uh, describe how you differ a little bit how, as the administrator of statutory license, uh, how a webcaster like a Pandora or another service gets to use all of the music that's been lawfully released and then what they, what they have to do. They essentially write one check. That's right. Yeah, so the, um, the statutory license it applies to any track, any sound recording that's been commercially released in the United States. And so if you're setting up your, your digital music service and you're looking to secure a license to use the tracks, you don't have to worry about going to various places to secure the rights that you need to stream those tracks. Um, provided, of course, that you stick within the, 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 the restrictions of the statutory license. So again, the statutory license is available for anything that's been commercially released. In exchange for having that wide breadth of, of tracks to be able to use, there are some restrictions on what the statutory license covers. First, perhaps most importantly in this day and age is the fact that it's limited to non-interactive transmissions. And non-interactive versus interactive, there is a fair amount of gray area in there, but generally if the, uh, if the user can d dictate what it wants to hear next from your, from your service, then it's, then it's interactive and your service would not be able to use the statutory license for those streams. Your, your service can have both non-interactive streams and interactive streams and you can, you can choose to use the statutory license for, for your non-interactive streams. Um, it, for services that decide to use the statutory license, they don't, again, they don't have to go to every single copyright owner to secure the permission they need for those tracks that they want to use. Um, all they have to do is to uh, send to SoundExchange uh, a check uh, and essentially their, their logs, their playlists of what they played. And then it's SoundExchange's responsibility to gather all that money together, gather all the playlists together, and then each quarter we distribute those, those dollars out to, to the artists and, and to the labels. And one point I want to make about the fact that the statutory license covers um, all commercial release tracks, uh, for the artists out there, that means that we probably have money for you, even though you're, for when you've been played on a service that you might never have heard of. And so we're constantly reaching out to new artists to make sure that they're registered with SoundExchange because the chances are good that we have, we have money for them. And uh, my colleague Brian Calhoun over here is uh, in charge of our outreach efforts, and I definitely encourage you to, to stop by and talk to Brian about um, registering with SoundExchange. Now, Brad, a significant benefit that you didn't describe of sound exchange also is treatment for the payment of royalties to artists mm -hmm. and how that may differ from a direct license. Can you describe what that is? Right, so the direct licenses are between the, uh, the, sound, uh, the sound recording copyright owners and the service. The statutory license with sound exchange as the collective um, in the middle, uh, what we do is we collect those royalties that services pay and then we're required by statute to pay half of those royalties to the copyright owners and half of the royalties to the artists. So the artists, through that mechanism, are going to be paid a lot more quickly than they might otherwise would be in, a, in another situation. Um, and 
for many artists who are um, not yet recouped from their label, the, uh, this means that they'll get money um, directly from us where they might not otherwise get the money from, from the labels. Now, SoundExchange administers several different licenses, all statutory licenses, where a license is on a per-performance basis, meaning that the service is only paying a royalty for each time it transmits all or any portion of a song to a listener. So three listeners to uh, one song, that would be three performances. If someone licensed a webcaster directly, they could do a carve-out of the performance royalty. Yeah, that's right. For the per-performance rates, the, uh, the, the service only needs to pay us for the, tr the transmissions that it makes in reliance on the statutory license. So if, it's, if the service also has an interactive um, component where it's paying the, uh, the um, copyright owner directly, those, those transmissions aren't made in reliance on the statutory license, and so there's no need for those services to, uh, to uh, pay us for those streams or report those, those streams to us. By the way, what this actually means is if you wrote a song and you recorded it and it gets played on Pandora, you've just made two income streams. One, because you own the recording of the song, they're going to pay you that, actually three. The second, if you're the performer, if you're the actually person that performed it, you get another one from SoundExchange, and then you can make another one as the songwriter from somebody like BMI. That's why this is a good thing. That's why you guys need to understand this stuff, because you tend to be both the songwriter and the record label and the performer. You've just made three royalty streams off of one spin, so to speak, of your song and the recording of it on Pandora or Last FM or 8Tracks or Slacker or take your pick of what, the 4,000, 4,000 entities that currently pay SoundExchange and the tens of thousands that probably pay BMI. See, this is a good thing. Now, Ron, one of the issues that has come up and, and there's no, people in this room are probably very well aware that there have been some grumblings in the past about the statutory rates that have been established by SoundExchange. There was a predecessor to the SOPA and PIPA blackout of a radio day of silence uh, after one of the webcasting rate proceedings, and Pandora currently pays a rate that is a favorable rate, non-precedential, that is roughly 50% of what some of the other commercial music services uh, pay because they're what's called a pure play webcaster. And a pure play webcaster agrees to pay the greater of 25% of all of its US-based revenue or a per-performance fee. So, Brad, if someone is looking to direct license as a record label, Pandora, there is not necessarily a benefit to Pandora for taking that direct license because it's still going to have to pay 25% of its revenue or the, the per-performance rate, mm -hmm. and if the revenue is now higher, there's no benefit to the direct licensing. Yeah, right? that's right. Now, Ron, one of the things that you've tried to do uh, with MRI, with some of your clients, is to bring direct licensing not just from the world of the PROs, but into the world of the sound exchange administered statutory licenses. Can you briefly describe what you've publicly uh, submitted testimony on in a rate court proceeding? Choosing my words very carefully. <laughs> the law as enacted and as conceived by the record industry uh, that, that created these statutory licenses also created an out, an out for the labels themselves who might decide that it would be in their best interests to be able to license uh, 
big users directly. And as a matter of fact, what ended up happening in the last uh, rate proceeding for SiriusXM was um, SoundExchange actually argued to the court, you know, judges, you shouldn't be worried that you set the rate too high. Because I know you want to set a reasonable fee within a range, but you can set a really high rate. You don't need to worry about negative effects of, of setting a rate too high. Because if you do, then the marketplace mechanism that's in the statute will simply start being used, which means that, the, that Sirius XM and others will begin to negotiate voluntary direct licenses with copyright owners. Sound Exchange made that argument. Well, guess what happened? That's what started to happen in the marketplace. Uh, uh, Sirius XM was just one of them, decided that the rates were simply getting too high. And so they began to negotiate directly with record companies, uh, partly because the rates were too high, partly because Sirius needed more rights than they could get under the statutory license. And by the way, the statutory license you know, is unfortunately antiquated already. Technology moves faster than, than um, legislatures can, can, can legislate. So um, SiriusXM decided to go to a competitive market and say, well, instead of having to get your money through a collecting society, we'll pay you quarterly, uh, we'll account directly, transparently, no administrative fee deductions, and you know what? You know, we're going to play more and more direct license materials. So if you do deals with us, you have the opportunity to have your works played more than they would be otherwise. And please talk to our programming people. They're really looking for good music. And therefore, you would have the ability to make greater revenue than you would. So that's what's happening in the marketplace. I know there's been a lot of public discussion about it. Um, but in fact, many, 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 many record labels are opting for this. Now, there's a concern that uh, artists somehow are going to be screwed because the record companies aren't going to pay them. I disagree completely. Remember, under the direct licensing uh, uh, provisions demanded by the record industry, uh, the artists get paid pursuant to the record contracts. But let me ask you, for those people in this room, how many of you have, have major company record deals? Okay, a few, two people. Most of you own the tracks. So you are the copyright owner, you are the artist. You're not gonna get underpaid, okay? You're gonna get paid directly with no admin fees. So that's what's going on in the marketplace and it's all about SiriusXM deciding they need more rights and they need them at a reasonable fee and that's what's happening. Brad? Yes. <laughs> I don't even have a question, I just right. open it for your response. So the, uh, as always, the, uh, the devil is in the details and the, uh, the things, SiriusXM is, is, is well within its rights to um, seek direct licenses if it so chooses. And the labels are well within their rights to, as, as Ron said, the labels are well within their rights to, to agree to those direct licenses. But the, 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 the facts that people need to be aware of is that the rate that um, SiriusXM is proposing um, to pay for these direct licensing deals is below what the, uh, the rate currently is and well below what SoundExchange thinks the rate will be in the future. So where, where you, you as a copyright owner might see, um, might see more money now under a direct license deal with, uh, with, with SiriusXM, 
That's just right now. Um, in the future, if the rates um, uh, reach the level that we think they will reach, then you'll be leaving a lot more uh, money on the table. The, uh, the second thing to say is that an artist, as an artist, the, um, uh, these direct licensing deals, um, they presume that the, art that the money that's due to the artist, the royalties due to the artist, will, will flow down. Maybe that will, maybe that won't. Uh, for those uh, artists and for those services that are paying under the statutory license, the artists can be assured that they're going to get their 50% of the money. Um, and the third thing, this is just my personal opinion, the third thing too is that, um, as Ron said, the, uh, the services that, uh, the, that um, like SiriusXM, if it agrees, if it reaches a deal with a, uh, a copyright owner with a label to, um, to get a direct license, SiriusXM has promised to play those, those tracks more frequently. And they, you know, that's, that's to their, their self-interest. That does mean, however, that the music that's being played isn't necessarily the best music th that's out there. Right now, under the statutory license, all tracks are available for a service to use. And so whether track A or track B is being played isn't dependent on the finances behind the scenes. It really depends on what the users want to hear. Right, although, to be fair, there are, you know, if Pandora did not have the pure play rates, which were not established by the court, they would be paying, based upon the information from their S1, 92% of their revenue just for the performance of the sound recording. So an argument is that those rates may have been too high and that it is perfectly legitimate for someone to try to reduce their costs. What I find very interesting, though, is there are artists who are objecting to the direct licensing. There are uh, support coming from Neil Portnow, the head of Naris. You've had uh, Rich Bengloff, I believe, may have made some statements about it. But the issue is, if you're an artist, you shouldn't like this because if the money is paid to your label, you're not going to get paid because the label's recouping under a valid contract. So what is being said is, don't trust your label, yet the labels control 50% of sound exchange. The labels decide licensing for sound exchange. And we're worried about what our business partners are going to do to screw the artists. So what we have to do is we have to keep those rates up. But what better. gets lost in this conversation is that the majority of music being distributed, released, created, shared, downloaded, and played is happening outside of the traditional label system. And what this means is one size does not fit all. And people should have choice. And sometimes one choice is better than the other, depending upon which side of the fence you're on. Okay, our customers base sold a half a billion units of music in the past three and a half years and earned over a quarter billion dollars. One of them just won a Grammy last night, Civil Wars. Okay, this is happening outside of the traditional system. And what gets me very frustrated and empowered and impassioned and, and over the top and swearing a lot is that these conversations tend to be dictated by what the music industry used to be, not what it is. And frankly, for our customers, if you control the recording and you're the lead performer, with all due respect, I'm a huge supporter of Sound Exchange and think you should register there. But frankly, from a cost-benefit analysis basis, you'll make more money, you'll make it more quickly, and you'll make it in a much more transparent fashion. That doesn't mean that that's right for everybody. If you're signed to a traditional record label, and forgive me, Ron, for saying this, you know what? I'm not sure I trust EMI to account back to me directly the performer's share of the public performance that's coming off of the sound recording, and perhaps SoundExchange is a better organization. And by the way, I love the fact that these two organizations exist to fight on behalf of us to get the rates up. I think that's a good thing. But we gotta remember, all the music that's being created now, it's happening outside of the system. We distributed to TuneCore a million newly recorded tracks in 2011. 
Okay, a million newly recorded tracks. The majors combined in 2011, 4,000. Jeff, quick question. On the statements you get, do you have any sense, you may be releasing more music, but I think there's been some uh, debunking of the myth about the long tail. Do you know what the percentage of your music is of a service like Pandora? Or is it still the case that the majority of the music that is being played, not being released, that is being played on services is still major label content? I have absolutely no idea. Okay. I've never gotten access to the data okay. points. Maybe Sorry. Sound Exchange will disclose some of that information in an amalgamated way so it's not in breach of any confidentiality provisions in the, in the regulations. Uh, quickly, because we're But I know that our customers have earned over $5 million through Sound Exchange. So okay. that must speak yeah. something to, to the value over the last three years. In, in the last year, how much money did Sound Exchange collect from all of the statutory licenses in 2011? 2011, we collected $290 million. $290 million. And just to okay. give some context to that, in 2005, <clears throat> it was $20 million. Uh, and, uh, and then it, in the... Uh, is that collected or distributed? It, it is distributed, yeah. Okay. Yeah. How, um, how much did you collect in royalties in 2011? Uh, it's hard to gauge. I don't know that number offhand. And in fact, okay. we, would, we won't know that number... Um, February in, until 16th. Yeah, until um, the middle of this month. Um, but in terms of, of distributions, we, uh, we distributed 20, 20 million in, in 2005. 2009, we distributed about 150 million, so it's doubled in the last two years. In other words, huge growth in the digital streaming sector. That's the future of this industry. Okay, so very quickly, uh, cloud-based services, the licensing landscape, two different models. These are not statutory services. They're not eligible. If you're going to operate a cloud-based service, in some respects, you cannot use a statutory license. There are mechanisms and services, though, that combine cloud-based services with statutory overlay. Uh, Brad, if someone is uploading music to a service, so the, the service relies upon what's called 512C of the Copyright Act for content stored at the direction of a user, and they then take that music and don't offer it as a, as a locker back to the user, but they offer it to power an internet radio station. You think that's okay? Well, the, uh, there's, again, it goes back to the two, two rights at play. Um, the one right being the, uh, uh, the public performance of that music. The other right is the, uh, the right of reproduction. And in this situation we, that, where you're describing, the, uh, um, the, so your, situ your situation is one where it's been the, a lawfully The user uploads company. it under 512C. Yeah. The service reproduces the uploaded copy and takes a license under 112E and then powers a non-interactive service. Yeah, we, we won't, put it this way, SoundExchange will not, um, we'll collect the royalties that we receive from services, we'll distribute those royalties out um, uh, according to the, the playlist that we receive, um, but that's the, the extent to which we look okay. at it. Jeff, yes, uh, you've got Apple doing a scan and match cloud-based service, and then you've got Google and Amazon that are doing a pure locker where the music is uploaded and that it's played back. You were talking in the green room about how all of a sudden someone was taking a music collection that they owned and it was being turned into a new revenue stream. Oh yeah, it's, it's really frickin' cool. I mean, so the iMatch service, sorry, iTunes Match service, I've already been berated on my blog for calling it iMatch. Uh, never take on the blockers. Um, the iTunes Match service <clears throat> has consumers pay 25 bucks to Apple. 
And what happens is Apple organizes and synchronizes up your music collection as it exists along all of your hard drives and different devices. Whether you bought it is irrelevant. If it's on your hard drive or flash memory drive, it's there. And then all those songs become available for someone to re-download or play on demand through all their little devices. So every single time somebody listens to a song that they already have, the copyright holders are now getting paid. Let me give you the two models. You have a song on your computer, you play it. Nobody gets paid. You have a song on your computer, you subscribe to iMatch. Copyright holders get paid. And what happened is in the first month that the iMatch royalties showed up, there was about 1,000 bucks that came in across about eh, 45,000 artists. I know, it's not a lot of money. New income stream. Second month, $9,000 showed up across about 55,000 artists. Right? This, is, this is a new income stream. To me, it's magic money. Granted, you're not going to buy a mansion off of it, but geez, we're month two of this thing. So I just find it absolutely cool and fascinating what's going to come out of this. I will come to you if there are no questions, Michael, but there's an issue as to whether or not there are public performances that take place from a locker back to the user who uploaded it or to other users who listen to it. But we've only got about three or four minutes, and I'd like to go to questions, and there's a microphone here. So does anyone have any questions? There's one in the way back. Uh, if, we can, if you can start walking up to meet her halfway. By the way, while, while she's doing that, Ron's point was, would you want your music played in Starbucks and get a dollar today? Or do you want your music played in Starbucks and get oh. 60 cents two years from now? Okay. Thank you. And let's be you. quick, very quick with the okay. questions. Okay, I'll be fast. Michael Ashford, entertainment lawyer. Um, there's a tremendous disparity between what Pandora pays for licenses for the sound recording versus what it pays to BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC. I'm wondering why, number one. And number two, uh, interactive mechanicals under the statutory license are absolutely abysmal in terms of what publishers receive. I understand there's new rate proceedings, and could you talk, could anyone speak knowledgeably about what's likely to happen uh, with those rates going forward? Thank you. Uh, no one here, well, Ron, you may be involved in the 115. Quickly on the disparity between the sound recordings, though, and the musical work, the evidence that was introduced by the record industry was that it was much more expensive, greater risk to create sound recordings, uh, lower likelihood of return, fewer revenue streams, therefore the greater the risk, the greater the reward. So that's why you have this disparity, whether or not it's appropriate, I suspect that Michael would love to have well, the income stream. Just, that, to, just that to be fair is. though, you have to look at the PRO market on its own, right? So BMI is only half of it, maybe ASCAP, you know, and then they have CSAC. So if you take all these together, the multiples actually look much more reasonable between the sound recording, public performance, and the public performance. Ron, in, in 30 seconds or less in the 115 proceeding in the mechanical, what's... You, you need to understand that, that we're going to pooled compensation systems where there's a royalty pool. And in digital world, you have lots more transactions than you would have you know, from 12 songs on a CD. So the rate that's in place now, 10.5% and, or whatever it's gonna go up to for cloud services and we're already talking about a rate. Uh, these are rates that have been agreed to by the National Music Publishers Association. Unfortunately, when you talk about a gazillion performances on a pool of 10.5% of revenue, that means each performance is worth a very, very small amount of money, unfortunately. And by the way, I, you know, I, I wish it were a lot more, but I had the same problem I was consulting for a certain union uh, that was in their negotiations with the studios, and you know the and I have two friends who are really well-known actors. You would recognize them immediately, who have um, uh, you know uh, credits up the wazoo. And these guys thought, 
that their lives were handled because they were going to make so much more money in retirement from the residuals that they were going to earn, only to find out, along comes Hulu and, and everything else, and the residual system is gone, and they only get a percentage of revenue. It's okay, Ron, we've got to get to this you know, question. Yeah. Um, so I, I come at this not as a musician, but as an entrepreneur and an advisor to startups. Um, is there a way, given a digital file, to tell who has licenses to it? Um, and, and to tell those works which count as commercial releases and those works that don't. So I'm looking at my music library, 20% of it wouldn't count as commercial releases because 20% of my library are podcasts or audiobooks. Audiobooks might, but they're content that isn't a commercial music recording. But if I do iTunes match, they're gonna get up there. Um, if I'm an entrepreneur with a digital music service and I get a digital file, how do I tell who owns the licenses to it? I, I don't know if you can upload a, an audio book to, an I, to the iTunes service. And one of the things you're talking about is a global registry, potentially. Uh, that doesn't exist right now. I mean, you'd have to go to a service. You'd have to talk with data providers to get information. We've got one more. Was that a question just, over just here? Just quickly, though, there is a unique identifier usually associated with our sound recordings called the ISRC code. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that can be mapped against all these other databases of you know, rights. No, I can't. That's, that's, that's a false statement. We're, we're unfortunately out of time, but since it's a break, there you can come up. Thank you very much for coming.